This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman Sachs. Brexit poses a host of challenges for Europe, of course, but the continent is also facing sluggish economic growth, rising nationalists and populist parties, and questions about the future of the single currency market. My guest today, Richard Nada, is Vice Chairman of Goldman Sachs and heads up our European operations. And thus, he is tasked with dealing with all of these issues, plus much more. Richard's here to discuss what it means to do business today in Europe and around the world. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. So, obviously, a lot going on today in Europe. How have you approached your responsibilities as head of Goldman Sachs in the region, given the seemingly constant flow of news and events there? The most important thing is keep your eye on the ball and keep your eye on the long term. I think we've all seen throughout our careers that... As you look forward, there are always what seem to be insurmountable issues just in front of you. And of course, you work through those in a systematic way and suddenly they're in the rearview mirror. So it really is a question of keeping your eye on the long term. And for us, the long term is really straightforward. Our role and what we do around the world, but what we do in Europe is to finance the economy, finance companies, facilitate growth, create employment. And when you look at Europe today, it's an economy in size that rivals the U.S., it's a very significant economy. Its source of financing historically has been more bank-led lending, less capital markets. If you put broad numbers around all of that, it's 75% from the capital markets for the U.S. economy, 25% from bank lending, and Europe is really the other way around. And as banks in Europe have come under pressure, the reliance on capital markets is growing all the time. And so the long-term opportunity for us to do what we do is very, very significant. And so the most important thing is to position ourselves in terms of infrastructure, capabilities, people, focus on the client base so that we are there to really finance an economy of that size and that importance. And one that in terms of its needs is really coming the way of the capital markets and being a major capital markets player, that should work for the firm. Last month, the UK triggered Article 50, which obviously marks the beginning of this two-year process to withdraw from the EU. Goldman Sachs research has explained that negotiations of this type mean a great deal of uncertainty for businesses, and there will be many issues on the table that will allow trade-offs to be made up and down the agenda. What are the key issues that you're keeping on top of for our clients? The biggest question around Brexit really goes beyond the UK. The UK was never 100% part of Europe. They weren't part of the single currency. They were obviously part of the single market, and that's very, very important, and that brought certain responsibilities. But they always sat slightly at the edge of the broader EU28 community. They weren't alone in sitting there, but that's where they were. They weren't really at the heart in the way that a Germany or a France really sits at the core. And so the real question that comes out of Brexit, you know, is the UK the only country that's going to seek to leave and change its relationship? Or are there going to be others that follow? And if the UK is the only one, you know, I think we get through this. There will be negotiation that's going to go over the next number of years and the relationship will be adjusted and it'll obviously be dialed back, but it won't be a total separation. There will be a trade agreement. Its exact scope and form is obviously still to be determined and as are many other issues still to be determined. But the real European question is, does the core really hold together? And I think that's the most important judgment to make. Clearly, the market's change their view from time to time on that. And, you know, there's significant political events. I'm sure we'll come to talk about France later on. But as each of these elections 
roll across Europe and the European populations have their chance to state their case and show us what they think about Europe, that gives us more information. So when you're talking to clients, how are you seeing different sectors react to Brexit and its implications? Is there one model that seems dominant in navigating these issues or different clients looking at very different kinds of solutions? I think every industry is different, and I think clients within those industries are different. It depends whether your business is predominantly UK-based, whether you're reliant on the UK consumer for your business, or if it's a much broader business. Are you an exporter from the UK? Are you an importer? How much do you rely on cost of production? The currency is obviously depreciated since the original Brexit vote. Who knows what the trade agreement says in terms of tariffs and costs of getting your products into Europe. But you know, as of now, and of course Brexit hasn't happened yet, we've had a referendum, but the negotiation hasn't happened. But your relative cost of production has gone down just given the currency impacts broadly across the piece. And so if you're an exporter, you may be in a slightly better position. If you're an importer, the cost of those imports has gone up, obviously. There's some inflationary pressure in that. The UK consumer not feeling so robust. So if you're in the retail space, it's more challenging. So you really have to get into the micro position. But I think if you step back from all of that, the question is, how are you going to access the big market? And you know, the UK is a population in you know, the 60, 70 million people range. How are you going to access the rest of Europe? And you know, where does your manufacturing base have to be? How do you have to position yourself so you get best access to that marketplace? And those are the questions that people are thinking through. So as head of Goldman Sachs in Europe, how are you thinking about the implications for our firm? What does Goldman Sachs have to do to position itself? Well, there are two things, and it's easy for people to read too much into what we're saying. Our base case is we're going to wait and see, and we're going to see what these negotiations throw up. And you know, once we know for certain what the roadmap's going to look like, then we'll make our long-term plans and we'll position our people, capital, resources appropriately so that we can service our client base in an optimal way. So that's the long-term picture. But of course, we don't know how long we'll have to make that adjustment. We're pushing the authorities, both within the UK but across Europe, hard to ensure that there's a transitional period. Prime Minister May likes to call it an implementation period, but it means you know, it means the same thing. You know, once there's an agreement, how much time will you have before you have to be ready for business under two the years new under the then, new? So it's yeah. two years plus. And is it two years plus a day, or is it two years plus a year or two? And because of that uncertainty, we have to put in place contingency plans because we have to be ready in the case that it's two years plus a day as opposed to a longer period of time. And so what we've spoken about is what those contingency plans will involve. And you know, through 2017, that's a lot of work in terms of scoping out what a potential footprint would be. And as you get into 2018, obviously, we'll have to make some moves in terms of you know, infrastructure and people and resources but the right way to think about this, this is like buying an insurance policy. You hope you're not going to have to use it. But if you do, you please, you've got it in place. And so that's about contingency planning in the next couple of years. So what would a more broadly distributed Goldman Sachs footprint in Europe look like in terms of our day-to-day work with clients? Or should it be, from the client's point of view, seamless? Our objective is to make it seamless. We've got a heavily concentrated model right now with resources obviously concentrated in the UK and some minimal distribution across the continent. As we go forward, if our clients need to be interacting with 
the client base from inside of Europe, we will relocate our client-facing people, some of our client-facing people, you know, across a broad range of European markets. So we'll have more people in Madrid, more in Milan, more in Paris, you know, and the list goes on. And I think there'll be a real advantage to that in the sense that our people will be closer to their clients. And from a client perspective, that should be incremental and positive. And so I think that's obviously important. What's important for the client base, and of course is important for us, yeah, and frankly the regulators and policymakers, is that our cost of production does not go up in a meaningful way. Because if the cost of production goes up, you know, ultimately a lot of that cost will get passed on to the client base. And what I mean by that is that we continue to be able to allocate our capital and manage our capital and our liquidity in an optimal way. And as soon as you start to fragment pools of liquidity or fragment capital bases, it becomes less efficient, the costs can go up, and that, in essence, is a big part of our cost of production. So keeping that together in a consolidated way with all the appropriate regulatory oversight, supervision, and of course, in a Brexit world, you'd need that oversight and supervision both from the Bank of England, the PRA, but also from the European Central Bank, and for them in a coordinated, joined-up fashion to be overlooking that common pool which could be used for the business right across Europe. If we can get to that state, actually I think we could get to a terrific place from the client's perspective and in terms of us being able to really fulfill our role and perform our function in a really optimal way. If we get to a place where we have to fragment and we have to have one pool of capital sitting in the UK and another pool of capital sitting in the EU27 and all the consequences of that, that's obviously less attractive and more expensive. Let's move a little beyond Brexit itself. You work with a lot of CEOs, a bunch of different industry sectors. What are you hearing in terms of their confidence in the economy today and their willingness to commit capital, invest? Are they reasonably optimistic about the growth that they're seeing in Europe? I start from the global perspective. I think the big global companies, people operating in different parts of the world, and that's most of our client base, they do feel more optimistic. You know, I think that optimism in the U.S. started growing 12, 24 months ago. In Europe, it's a little bit more recent. There's a lag. But certainly people are feeling you know, much more optimistic about Europe, and you're starting to see it coming through in the European data. So absolutely people are feeling more optimistic and are prepared to invest. If you look at M&A volumes, if you just look at the first four months or so of this year, they're up 10 12% on the same period last year. You know, just shy of a trillion dollars in terms of activity. And a lot of that activity... That's globally. That's global. So, yep, that's, yep. Those are global numbers. But a lot of that activity is inside of Europe, and a fair amount of it is you know, the U.S. coming into Europe. I think people see on a relative value basis Europe providing a great opportunity right now. European markets, partly due to the lag and being a little bit behind the U.S. in terms of the recovery, some of the political risk that is there... Yeah, so those valuations more attractive. But the fact is, this European market is still a very big, important economic block, terrific potential inside of itself, but also great companies, great technology, and great things to buy. And I think the price is relatively attractive. Recently, you hosted a conference in London on disruptive technologies, and you had some of Europe's most successful, high-growth tech entrepreneurs there. What's the sentiment amongst the entrepreneurial set in Europe? And 
really in terms of their confidence, their views on growth, their ability to disrupt industries and get share. We talk a lot about in the United States here on this podcast, but we haven't necessarily talked so much about the disruptive technology landscape in Europe. It would be interesting to hear your views after that meeting. Yeah, I, th I think it'll surprise to the upside, actually. I think one of the great things about entrepreneurs is inherently they're optimistic, positive people, and they absolutely are not focused on the broad macro concerns and risks, and they're focused on building their businesses and building significant platforms. The event you talk about, we had something like 750 tech investors at the event. We had 80 or so tech companies, some very small, but some further down the path in terms of their development. And I'd say the tech scene across Europe is really quite impressive right now, and there's a lot more going on than than you'd necessarily think if you're sitting here in the U.S. And it's broadly based. The U.K. has a strong body of activity, and it's really based across the country, a lot in London, which is mainly fintech-type activity, but the strong science universities around Cambridge University, a lot of great technology. You saw Arm, you know, which was recently bought by SoftBank for just shy of $30 billion. That's a great U.K. tech success story, which came out of the Cambridge area. But you know, across Germany, you go to Berlin, there's a very vibrant seen their companies like Zalando and a lot you, of retail you go, you go to retail yeah. you go to Amsterdam yeah. some great payment companies coming out of Stockholm Spotify there's a great stable and I think you're the role models now for the young European entrepreneur exist and you start to get a virtuous circle there have been some great successes on the venture capital side so the financing starts to come through so I, I think there's a lot to look forward to there you mentioned arms acquisition by SoftBank. We've seen a lot of Japanese and Chinese firms get active because at home they're looking at really poor demographics and low growth. So they're in the search for global deals. What's it like getting those kinds of deals approved in Europe and in the UK? I mean, traditionally the UK has been quite positive about outside investment, but as the Chinese and Japanese firms get more active in Europe, is there any sort of backlash? No, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. You know, you think about a transaction such as the ChemChina acquisition of, potential acquisition of Syngenta, it's not fully done yet, but a transaction of great scale. There's been a lot of infrastructure investment that's come out of China into the UK. I think people look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, and, you know, I don't think Chinese, Japanese investor would be viewed any differently from a US investor, for example. I think it's about the quality of the companies, the quality of the targets, I mean, there's an extra dimension vis-a-vis -vis China, which is acquiring IP, technology, know-how, and being able to take some of that back into China, which gives a sort of double bottom line effect. There's a financial reward for the investment, but there's also bringing the technology and the know-how, which can obviously be used. But no, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis, and the relative valuation quality of companies, I think it's an attractive place to buy. And you're seeing lots of U.S. investment too, obviously. As the UK pulls out, I mean, it's always had its own authorities and, and there are national authorities across Europe, but is that going to make it harder to get these large cross-border transactions done because you're going to have to deal with US regulators, UK regulators, regulators in Brussels? Will that landscape make it more challenging for clients or are the economics more compelling and the regulatory stuff can be navigated? Yeah, I think on the margin it must make it more difficult, but I think it's very much on the margin. Brussels would always certainly take note, I wouldn't say defer, but they'd certainly take note of what the home regulator was saying. So if the UK regulator felt very strongly negative about something from a UK perspective, Brussels would certainly recognize that, and it would weigh very heavily in their thinking. And of course, that's true with all of the member countries. So you've always had to 
weigh the sort of local versus the pan-European when you're thinking about the Brussels response. Now, obviously, in the future, you'll have two responses. One will be the UK, one will be Brussels. So I think on the margin, it becomes more difficult. But the UK has been, up until this point, a very open economy and has welcomed foreign investment. But I suspect, you know, in the world that we're going into, and the political sort of ebbs and flows, like many countries around the world, is going to become on the margin more difficult. And certainly Theresa May has spoken about her industrial policy and preserving the industrial base and Britain's great companies. And so a sort of public interest test, yeah, on the margin may be more relevant in the future. But of course, yeah, up until now, what we've seen around these situations is a lot of political noise on day one. But by the end of the transaction, it's a question of what the shareholders think. And so you're going to have to, you know, there's going to have to be some real substance to the public interest argument. It won't apply across all sectors. But I'm sure when the UK is thinking about its science base or its national security type manufacturing companies, that's where the issue, when you're talking about consumer companies, yeah, not, I don't know. Not an issue. Yeah. So as we said at the beginning of the program, the news keeps coming. And we're speaking now just after the first round of the French presidential election which obviously markets were watching closely. What do you make of the results? Well, look, it's a market-friendly result. It reflected what the polls were saying. But, of course, the market, really based on what's happened in recent elections, well, the Brexit vote and the Trump election in the U.S., the distrust in polls and all of our ability to predict the outcome. So, you know, there was a lot of concern. But certainly a market-friendly result I just make the observation, it is interesting that the markets are really celebrating Macron and the anticipation that he'll come through in the second round. There is a second round. He's got to win it. But certainly people, as they sit today, anticipate that he will. But of course, he doesn't come from either of the mainstream political parties there. And yet he feels feels mainstream today. So there's a way to go. But what France has done, certainly in this first round, is put a strong pro-European player in the front seat. And that's a very significant message. And I think it's a reminder that the UK view of Europe and the citizens of the UK, how they feel about Europe, how European they feel, is very different from how a French or a German or a Dutch citizen feels. And you can roll that across much of the EU 27. Their frustrations in all of the EU 27 about some of the stuff that comes out of Brussels and yeah, everybody's got their own different favorite issue that they don't feel comfortable with. But fundamentally, they feel much more European. And I think you've seen that in the French election. And at the end of the day, for Europe to prosper, you need Germany and France together to be joined at the hip and driving this project forward. And if Macron gets through the second round, he becomes the president, he alongside whoever the next German leader will be, and we're going to have those elections later in the year, it will be in a position to provide that leadership to Europe, and it's really, really important in terms of providing the political stability against which the economic growth and some of the changes and reforms that are obviously needed across Europe can take place. It's a positive for Europe. So obviously we work in a very global business. We serve global clients, but we've got a political climate where there's some serious skepticism towards the benefits of globalism. How can the firm be sensitive to those concerns, both at home and abroad? It's a good question. It's a broad-based question. I go back to some of the discussion about approvals for M&A transactions. The impact on jobs is going to be important. 
And if a transaction's been done and the sole driver is cost-cutting, taking out jobs, taking out employment, it's going to be a tougher transaction to get done. And you know, maybe the government won't have to intervene, but society at large will form a view. The pendulum has swung. This concept of fairness and, you know, and long-term, and are you doing this because it makes a better business and you're going to invest in the business and you're going to grow the business, you're going to have an easier ride. If it's all about just you know, cost-cutting, taking out employment, I think it's going to be tougher. So that's in the M&A arena. But I think more broadly, this question of economic fairness, not just having strong winners and you know, a broad base of losers, people are going to have to be sensitive to it. From our point of view, it goes to the core of what we do. We're going to have to work harder and really drive to provide finance to the growing parts of the economy, to entrepreneurs, to companies, so that they can grow their businesses, they can create more employment, they can create more opportunity, and, and really making sure that we really aggressively help facilitate that sort of capital allocation, that asset allocation, is going to be a really important thing for the future. Richard, thank you for joining us. Always great to have you. Great to be here. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on April 24th. 2017. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.